1 Samuel chapter 18 is we're going to be this morning. We're going to read in verses 1 through 16. As we continue on in our series looking at the life of David, and um, in particular um, looking as a means of looking and walking through First uh, and Second Samuel. This week, the focus will be a little bit less maybe directly on David, but more on the reactions and the interactions of those around David as we see the demise in particular of Saul. First Samuel chapter 18, reading through verse 16, hear God's word. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, we've uh, been, and the last couple of weeks, have been looking at the life of David. We've seen David's calling. And then last week, we looked at the very famous text, uh, the story of David and Goliath. And as we're looking at the life of David, we're, ta- we're in part of looking at someone's life is you must look at how the people around them react to them and respond to them and who they are. And that is what we see this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 18, that there is divergent and there is contrasting responses to David, and really, the two, there's only two responses to David, and there's really two parties. There's everyone, and then there's Saul. You notice as you go throughout the passage, God has favor upon David. Jonathan has favor on David. All the people of Israel love David. If we were to keep reading in 1 Samuel chapter 18, Saul's daughter, Michael, loves David. Saul's own servants love David. Everybody but Saul. Saul has got a problem 
with David. In the middle, you know, that text is actually designed to be this. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 18, is it begins with Jonathan and his love for David, and it ends at the very end of chapter 18 with Michael's love for David. But in between is this focus on Saul's hatred of David. And why does he hate him? Why does he hate him? What incites Saul's hatred of David? A song, a folk song, nonetheless. A country music song. Never has country music incited such hatred in the heart of some one man. But why does he hate him? It's because in the song they sang that Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And that makes Saul what? Envious of David. Envy. Envy is what we're going to make a direct look at this morning for. It is at the core of Saul's demise. Envy. Envy is something that we rarely talk about. I'm not sure I've ever heard a sermon until perhaps this week on envy. Envy is something that we just simply don't, we don't admit. You've never been in a community group and had somebody say, raise their hand and be like, okay, I got a really important prayer request. I'm really envious of this one particular person in my life, except, but envy is utterly prevalent in our lives. Did you know this? In every known language in the world, they have a word for envy, for envy. Israel, the context of this is Israel has been greatly victorious over the Philistines. They're having great victories. They are victorious over their enemies. This is a great day. This ought to be a great day for Saul. He comes in as the lauded hero, and his armies have won a victory. Everything is swell for the people of Israel. Everything is swell for David. There is a great moment. This is a great party, and yet the crowd is singing, about, and they're singing about how great Saul is, except they're also singing about how great David is. And so Saul is full of envy. Next week, we're going to look at Jonathan's famous friendship with David. But this week, we're going to get just a little bit of a preview at the end of our time together this morning of that relationship. But more than that, today's passage, what it does is it sets us up. It sets us free in order to be able to actually have a friendship with God's anointed one. We see what keeps Saul from actually being in relationship with David was his envy. Envy. Got five questions for you this morning to help us walk through our time together in this text. Five questions, quite simple ones, and all in regards to envy. The first question is this, is we must begin with what is envy? What is envy? Now, we must make a distinction between envy and jealousy. It is different from jealousy. Jealousy is in regards to what one has. You are jealous for the attention of your spouse Envy is in regards to what other people have. Jealousy wants to keep. Envy wants to have. This is why the Bible says that we have a jealous God, but it never mentions that we have an envious God. It is right because there are certain places and times where it is right and good for us to be jealous, but there are never times in which it is good for us to be envious. Envy is this. Envy is the desire for someone else's life. Or some component of it. Envy is the desire for someone else's life or some component of it. Envy asks this question. Hey, what about me? That's what it's asking. It's asking this question. Hey, she has or he has that talent and that beauty or that wealth. Hey, he has that spouse. He has that career success. And they have that perfect child. Why not me? I want that. 
Envy is the discontent you feel over what other people have that you don't. There is wealth envy and there is dog envy. There is spouse envy. There is kid envy. There is career envy. There is lifestyle envy. There's even personality envy. I've longed to have somebody else's personality. There's beauty envy. Envy is difficult to spot because it is felt, though, where no one else can see it. It's felt inside of us. But even though envy is inside of us, its effects for us are so unbelievably disastrous. In fact, we might say that they are deadly. That's the second, second question for us this morning. So what is envy? Envy is the desire for someone else's life or some component of it. And it asks the question, what about me? I want that. What are the effects of envy? There's three I want to point out to you this morning. Three effects of envy. Three effects. First is this. Envy sucks the joy out of our lives because of comparison. Envy runs on comparison such that it poisons our joy. You're unable to enjoy what you have because of comparison with what other people have. You're unable to enjoy what you have because of unhealthy comparison with other people. Notice this. Does Saul have a bad life? Is his life devoid of some sort of pleasures and joy? Is his life full of sorrow and anguish? No. In this moment in which envy takes control in Saul's life, Saul is at the pinnacle of his kingship. Things are going very well. By worldly standards, Saul is a successful person. He has been given much by God, but yet he cannot enjoy it. Why? Because in comparison to what David has in regards to the praise of men, his things seem small. Envy, if you've asked this question as a Christian, if you're struggling with joy, this might be one of the places you need to look because envy will steal your joy. Envy poisons our ability to enjoy what we have been given because nothing is good enough because someone else, we can always find someone else out there who has something that we consider to be better than what we have. A better spouse, a better job, a better life. It's so insidious within us. You know, there was actually one study a number of years ago called this, called Luxury Fever is the name of the study. But here's what the study proved. It proved that people would agree to make less money as long as they can make more money than their neighbors. In other words, they would rather make $75,000 and have all their neighbors around them make $60,000 than live in a neighborhood where they make $125,000 and everybody around them makes $150,000. This is who we are. American writer and satirist H.L. Mencken said this, and this is a brilliant statement. Contentment in America is making $10 more than your brother-in-law. That is what contentment is. And we live in comparison. Envy runs on comparison. But if you live a life of comparison, it will rob you. It will poison your soul and rob you of joy. The second effect of envy is this. Envy poisons our ability to celebrate with others and for others because of resentment. Envy poisons our ability to celebrate with others and for others because of resentment. Have you ever experienced this? That when somebody gets something, it's not that you're just envious because you want it, but you hate them for it. Envy makes us actually resentful of others because they have something that you don't have. You don't just want others to have some, not have something. You resent them for having that thing. Envy can't rejoice with those who rejoice. You know, this is a command of the Bible, right? 
that you're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And actually, it is envy that will undercut both of these things in us. Envy will not allow you to rejoice with those who rejoice. You see, one of the two most often, most spoken lies, most, maybe in the church more than any other, is this. The first lie is this, I'll pray for you. And the second lie is this, I'm so happy for you. I'm so happy for you, as we say it through gritted teeth. I'm just so happy for you. So happy for you. Envy can't praise, it can't admire, it can't celebrate. There's a famous example of this. There's a man um, in the name uh, Antonio Salieri. He's one of the greatest musicians in all of human history. He was the count composer for the Habsburg Empire. He, has, he was friends with Beethoven, and he was acknowledged even in his day to be one of the greatest musicians in history. And yet Sa- Salieri went near mad and crazy because he was so full of envy because he, he had the misfortune of living at the same time as who? Mozart. Mozart. He was, in fact, there's, if you ever seen scenes from one of the movies that depicts his relationship with Mozart, he's crying out to God in his anger. He is angry at God for having him live at the same time period as Mozart, where he is in comparison with that pagan Mozart. How dare you give Mozart these gifts? He could not enjoy Mozart's brilliance because of his resentment of it. And Saul could not enjoy David's success, even though, what did David's success mean for Saul? And then Saul was seen as a success. In fact, envy, though, not only does it make you unable to rejoice with those who rejoice, but this, it also makes you happy at others' misfortune. Here we got to come to terms with how to pray if we really are. Germans have a great word for this. It's called schadenfreude. Schadenfreude, it means the enjoyment obtained from the trouble of others. When we cannot weep, When others fail, that's a problem, and that's a result of envy. In fact, if we are honest, if we are honest, when we see the failures of our friends, we have deep down inside of us a quiet satisfaction when we see them fail. This has got to be one of the ugliest parts of who we are as human beings. Have you ever ever had the experience of watching your kid, and you're seeing your kid at a sporting event, and you're seeing your kid's success at the expense of another kid's failure, and deep down you're going, yeah, that's envy. That's a result of envy. That is a result of your messed upness and your depravity. Dorsey Sayers says it so well. She said this of envy. If I can't be happy, I would rather see all of us miserable. If I can't be happy, I'd rather see all of us miserable. Envy. Envy, it's going to suck the life out of your relationships. And what form does envy take in your life? Envy can come in various forms outwardly within you. As it comes out, it can come out as sarcasm and cynicism. You, I, I, and I, this, is, I, I, this example comes from my own heart and what I've done. If you ever found yourself undermining the success of others, if you ever found yourself, you know, if you're, if you're a, a mom and you're looking at the, that, the, the perfect mom out there. Her house is always clean, and her kids are always obeying, and her kids appear to always seem to have their act together. And you think this, well, I bet she has a terrible relationship with her children. Because all she cares about is the cleanliness of her house. What are you doing? It's your cynicism. My goodness, I see her success, and therefore I will undercut it. 
I will believe nothing good about this person. Sometimes, often it comes out as self-pitying, feeling sorrow for, sorry for yourself as you compare yourselves to others. What you think you deserve or what you think you ought, where your life ought to be right now. And so you feel self-pity for yourself. Envy, envy. Man, there's nothing that has heightened our sense of envy than social media, has it? In fact, I don't want to say that Facebook runs on envy, It drives our social media. We get on Facebook each and every day because it is the social media is now the main measuring stick to tell you where you are in the world. In fact, you know what? I've never actually unfollowed somebody because of their politically caustic or because they have things that that they say that I disagree with or they're just generally a miserable person. I always unfollow the people. I've unfollowed at least two friends because their life is just too darn pretty. And it makes me just sick. And I'm just so angry about it that I can't handle it. And so that's it. I say, I'm unfollowing you. I don't want to see your life. Because every time I get on, it means that I have this measuring stick in front of me that I can't measure up to. And so I'm full of envy and self-pity. The third thing, the third effect of envy, though, is this. This is the end result. Envy destroys your life. Let's put it, let's put it very clearly. Envy destroys the world. Envy destroys the world. I want to see this in Saul's life first, then we'll show it to the world. Envy destroys Saul's life. That is much as clear. In verse 10, it actually says that God, because of Saul's envy, he sends a harmful spirit from God that rushed upon Saul. This is the Bible's way of saying that because Saul had given himself over to envy, that God finally also gave him over to envy. You see, if you give yourself over to envy, God may actually eventually give you to it as well. That is when you become addicted to it, when your soul feeds on it. You see, addiction is never merely, it goes beyond the physiological. And the more we give ourselves to things like envy or lust or gluttony, we give ourselves over to a deadly sin and we actually put ourselves in touch with evil forces out there that desire to enslave you. Some of us, some of you, are enslaved by envy. Do you understand the destructive power of envy? Jonathan Edwards, about 200 years ago, has a sermon where she wrote on envy that was a vast, fascinating thing. At one point, he says that he, we should never underestimate the power of envy. Because and even though we see, it, we see it often as just kind of this little foible, some little cute thing in our life. But he says, you know, the person, the first place where we ever see envy in history, and this is before time began, actually, is who? Lucifer. You know the reason why Satan fell and became angel, the, Lucifer, the angel Lucifer became Satan was he was in heaven, and he's in heaven for crying out, right? He is in heaven in the presence of God. Think of heaven, he, and yet he is, it says he is greater than all the other angels. He's essentially number two in heaven, and yet that is not enough for him because he wants to be God. Envy, envy. And think about how what happened in the Garden of Eden. You see, it destroys the world. What is it? Adam and Eve have every thing in the garden. God says, I have made the world. I have given it to you. All the plants and the trees, all the animals, it's for you, except you cannot have this one thing. And how does the devil, how does he tempt Adam and Eve? Don't you want to be like God? If you, you, there's just one more, there's somebody who has something that you don't have, all the wisdom and knowledge, and so you should eat from this tree. And so they do. It is envy that it destroys the world. And yet we, we don't take envy very seriously. In fact, we, we treat envy as if it's this small thing. 
that's just like, oh, that's no good. Ah. We sense it in ourselves and we go, I got to stop that. We don't take, in fact, actually in our culture, our, our, we almost would say that we laud envy as if it's a, a great thing. It's almost as if capitalism runs on our envy because it incites our greediness. This is how we, if you actually do a Google search on envy, the first 90% of the references that you'll get have nothing to do with the sin. They have all to do with what? Shopping, retail outlets. You know, there's a website actually that we have, it's called Body Envy. It's a website that's directed um, at particularly at teenage girls in which what the whole purpose of the website is to have pictures of various supermodels and Hollywood movie stars in which the young girls can go to and they can say, this is whose body I want to have. Now, it was very distressing that they, they say the person who owns that website had to put a disclaimer out a couple years ago because in, within Google searches and various um, websites out there that were trying to connect themselves to this website and link themselves to this website were all pro-anorexia websites. And she was shocked by this. Now, listen, envy, envy will ruin, it will destroy your life. Envy starts as peers as a small little headache. But so do brain tumors. So do brain tumors. Envy is a small thing that will eat you up and it'll spit you out and will leave you joyless and poisoned and dry and contemptuous of yourself and everybody else around you. So we need to turn the corner. This is a lot of it, a lot of bad news. Where does envy come from? We got to get to the root of it, though. Got to get to the root of it before we can give some good news here. The root. Where's the root for Saul? You know, it's interesting to see here what incites Saul. It was just a little folk song, wasn't it? It's just a song. That's all it is. Have you ever had this happen when there's like some small thing that comes into your life? It's in some small thing that your child does or something that somebody says at work or something your spouse says and it's this small innocuous simple thing and yet it sets you off into a rage and a few minutes later when you've uh, when you have come to the end of your emotional tirade and you're kind of coming back too emotionally and you're going what in the world was that in me where did that come from? Why did, I mean, when I look at it objectively, that small thing that my spouse said or that my child did, that's so, that's so small. How, did, how is it that that incited that reaction, that explosive reaction within me? Well, what's it say? There's something deeper going on. There's something deeper going on. You know, in the Amazonian, I uh, sort of the story this week about Amazonian in- Indians who fish but the way they fish is they cheat, at least the way we would think of fishing, because we fish for sport, not for provision. So we want to make it as difficult as possible. But these Indians, what they do is on their way to their fishing hole is they pick up these particular plants. And they make sure they pick these plants up by the root and get the whole root because the root has a particular poison. And when they reach their fishing hole, they take those, a rock and beat the roots a little bit to release the poison and then throw these plants into the water. And the poison in these plants has this, it has this a shocking effect that paralyzes the fish so that they all just rise to the surface and they just pick them up. Where is the poison at? The poison is at... The root, and we got to get to the root of our envy. What is at the root of Saul's envy? We got to get to the root of Saul's envy. Why do we tend, you know, I asked this question to get there. Why do we only tend to envy certain people? You know, you don't envy everybody, right? Moms tend to envy 
other moms. Academics tend to envy other academics. Athletes tend to envy other academics. Pastors tend to envy other pastors. I'm going to go to an envy fest in about two weeks. It's called General Assembly. It is utterly miserable in which about 1,500 pastors from our denomination get together and we all just tiptoe around each other. It is awful. Why do we have, why do we envy certain people and not others? I think this account shows us why. Why does Saul envy David in particular? It's because he is afraid of David. Because David threatens something about Saul and Saul's life. We see in two places in this text. Verse 12, it says this. Saul was afraid of David. And in verse 15, it says, When Saul saw that he had great success, David had success, he stood in fearful all of him. Here's the reason why Saul is envious of David. Is below his envy is his fear of David because Saul or David's success and David's approval and David's praise is threatens what is most important to Saul's identity. His identity is based around a successful kingship and the approval of man. You envy people who have the things you are using. Listen to this. You envy people who have the things that you are using to justify yourself. To, to, that you're looking at to make yourself matter, which is why the academic is envious of other academics because the means by which he is most often trying to prove himself and show that he is matters in this world and that he's significant in this world is in the field of his work. You are envious, and in fact, you might hate the perfect mom because she is a threat to your acceptability as a mother. You are envious and you hate the gregarious guy who has all the confidence with, the win, with women because he is a threat to your acceptability and acceptability as a mate. But we have to go one step deeper into the tunnels of the hearts. It's not just that David threatens Saul's identity. They have to look at why Saul was looking to kingship and the approval of man for his security. And we're going to put it in the vernacular of what we see here in this text. Saul hears a song that incites his envy. But ultimately, our envy comes from a deep seated in security because we have lost the security of hearing God's song over us. Verse 12 is the key verse of the whole text of what is going on in Saul's heart. It says this, that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Saul has rejected God, God, the God who made him king, the God who gave him success, the God who gave and put him over the throne, and he has won, God has won victories for Saul, and yet Saul forgot about it, and he forgot God, and so God rejected Saul, and God has departed from Saul, and this has left Saul invariably shaky and insecure so that he must find his security somewhere else. This is a mimicking of our fall with Adam and Eve. Saul finds his security in his position, in his identity as king, and in the approval of men. If you, listen to me, if you are not hearing God's song of love for you, if you have lost the knowledge of God's delight that he has for you, his acceptance and approval of you, then you will look somewhere else for it. You'll look somewhere else for it. If you're not hearing God's love, if you have lost the knowledge of God's delight for you, then my goodness, You'll look to everything else and then you'll be drained of envy for all those who have what you are so desperately need to feel secure, to feel like you matter. You know, we looked at the fall, the disintegration of Saul a couple weeks ago in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 
And one of the sins of Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15 is not only does he reject God's word, but he builds a monument to himself. Why? Because Saul longs to feel as if he matters in this world. What's your monument? We long to have things that we can point to to say, that proves that I matter, that I am significant. It's why kids draw graffiti on walls. They're trying to say, I've made my mark in this world. If it is not God that satisfies you, that longing to matter, then you will not be able to help but resent those who are better because they will be undercutting the very things that you're looking forward to and towards to lift you up and to make you feel as if you matter. Saul is upset when the world's song, when the song that the world sings does not feed his security. And so he's envious. So the question is, so why is the praise and success we have to ask ourselves such a threat to us? Why do the possessions and the life of others make you feel so insecure? Who are you envious of? What do they have? And what does that say about what you're looking for, for approval and significance and security? What does it say about you? What does it say about what your functional God is? Well, this is all the bad news. Let's get to the good news. What is the antidote then to envy? Because you have to get to the root. We finally got to the root of it. We got to get, provide the antidote now. Saul's longing here and what sends him over the edge is Saul longs for the approval of man. He longs to be sung over. And they are singing over David more than him. And that's a longing that we have as well. And yet in the gospel and in the promises of God, what do we have in Christ Jesus? We have the great worshiper who has come to sing over us. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, it says this. If you've never heard this verse, then you need to hear this verse and you need to memorize this verse. And you need to put it on your fridge. You need to put it on your Bible. You need to put it on your mirror. For the Lord your God, it says, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Saul is incited to envy because the world will not sing over him as he longs to be sung over. And therefore, the antidote to his envy is to finally hear, to hear the voice of God sing over him once again. When we hear the voice of God singing over us, this is what breaks the power of envy because when you have the voice of God saying, you are mine and I am yours and all I have is yours and you are my delight and you're approved of and you matter in my sight, then you don't have to look to the things of this world. No one has ever loved you like God has loved you. You're jealous. You're jealous of someone else's spouse. And you see the way they love their, their spouse and you go, oh, I wish I had a spouse who loved me like that. You have a spouse who loves you like that. You know, one of the things that's most annoying about social media, and I've, we, my wife and I have pretty much taken a pack, I think, out of our envy of other people, is that we'll never be that couple that gets on Facebook and then just lauds everything, just, just gushes all over, emotionally all over Facebook about how perfect their spouse is. And you're like, listen, I love that you love your spouse. That is great. But listen, don't tell us. Tell them and leave us out of it. We don't want to hear about it. It makes us want to gag. <laughs> Ray Cortez, I heard this week, tells a story, though, about young one couple in his uh, church that he, he had the same feeling that we often have about the emotional expressions and affection uh, by spouses on Facebook. But he says, young, one young wife in his church said this, 
I thought this was so profound. She posted an account of her own life from, on the Facebook, and she said that she was filling an, an, an application for an, uh, a service dog. She was a woman with significant and severe handicaps, and the application actually required her to share about her life and about her life circumstances. And so she began to fill out this application. She wrote down a couple lines about herself. She says, I'm from such and such a place, and I'm a mother of three children. And she begins the next I am statement and then gets distracted, as often mothers do, and has to run off from the application. And later on, she comes back to her application, and, and she's picking it up again. And so she reads over what she has. And she reads again, I am such and such from such and such a place, and I have three children, and I am. And where she had left off, somebody else had come alongside and written over her story, had completed the I am statement, and here's what the I am statement said. I am loved wholeheartedly by my husband, and he thinks I am the sexiest woman in the world. You understand this is what God does for you? That you long to matter, you long to be approved of, you long to have someone who will love you in this way, to communicate their affection, and this is what God does. He comes, you think you're writing a story about how great you are. A story that you think will give you approval and make you matter and significant in this world, but yet God comes in. He's writing a better story. He writes his affection over you. By the way, some of you, when you heard that story, were thinking this. Man, I wish that guy were my husband. Envy, envy, envy. Well, the reality is he is your husband, right? Because that's who God is for us. That's what God is doing is he is coming to rewrite our stories, our stories in which we would settle we would settle for I am statements, I am rich, I am successful, I am loved by this person and that person, and God says, I have a much greater story for you. You're loved by me, and you matter to me. Even if you're not successful here and there, you're loved by me. Lastly, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Last question, what is the opposite of envy? Because that is what we all live into. What does it look like to be free of envy? You know, it's a strange thing. You know, this is like, you know, Preacher 101. If you're in seminary and trying to learn how to preach, you just kind of look up a word and the definition of the thesaurus. But I still did that this week because, you know, I'm really not that advanced as a preacher. And so I went and looked up the antonym to um, envy this week. You know what the antonym to envy is? Friendship and love. Now, I was very annoyed by that. That seems way too generic. That doesn't seem like, there seems like there should be something more specific until I actually looked at it in comparison to this text. What does it look like to be free of envy in this text? It looks like Jonathan. Verses one through four gives us Jonathan. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me read it again for you. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. In verse three, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And he gave his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. You know, Saul and Jonathan both realized something that's quite obvious. And they may have even heard, they may have already heard that Samuel has anointed David as the next king of Israel. They can see the people love David. They can see that David is a successful warrior. They can see that David is going to be the next king. And what's, there's two responses to David. Saul resisted, and Jonathan embraced him. And yet, who has more to lose, Saul or Jonathan? Saul's become an old man. Saul's already got to sit on the throne. Saul's going to be dead and gone. Who's supposed to inherit the throne? Jonathan is. If, John, if David is going to take the throne, who isn't going to be king? Jonathan won't. 
If David became king, that meant Jonathan was saying goodbye to wealth and prominence and power and a lazy legacy. But what does Jonathan do instead? Instead of fighting David, what does he do? He takes off his robe and he gives him his sword. Do you understand how profound this is? They had to take off a robe. This is what I'm in a royal robe. What he is doing is he is coronating David. He is saying, I laid down my right to the throne, and I am giving it to you. But then not only that, he gives him his sword. Now, back then, when you had competitors for the throne, what would you do to all the, the possible competitors? You would kill them all. You would take your sword, and you'd kill them. Because anybody who was a competition, so he's giving David his sword. And what, in other words, what he's saying is, David, not only am I saying that you should be king, but I'm saying I am your servant. Do with me as you see fit. I'm submitting my life to you. Why does Jonathan do it? Because Jonathan recognizes that who David is. David is, this is the thing that was going to come up over and over and over again. David is the uh, anointed one. Who's actually going to bring Israel to prominence? Who is the king that they actually need? It's David. And what does anointed one mean? Messiah. Who is the Messiah? Here's the point for us. Jonathan says, I will get off the throne and I will make my way for the anointed one of Israel. And the means by which you are free of envy, and you know you're free of envy, is when you say, I want to be a part of God's salvation work and I want to be a part of it. And the first step to be a part of God's salvation work in the lives of other people is to get off the throne and let Jesus, the true Messiah, stand up. You say, Lord, I see your salvation, your offering in Jesus Christ, and I must decide today if I'm going to get off the throne day by day. Am I going to get off the throne? If, will I humble myself again and again and say, Jesus, I am not the success story here. You're the success story. I am not the great hero here. You're the hero here. And you can use me as you see fit and use my life. Therefore, if you want to make me poor when my best friend is rich, you can make me poor. If you want to make me a good friend to somebody who has way more than me, then you do that. You are not the guest of honor. Jesus is the guest of honor. And yet he has brought you into the feast. I don't know, you say, I don't know how my story ends, God, but I know how your story ends. And so you can shape my story any way you want. You know, there's this interesting scene at the end, near the end of John's gospel, when Jesus is talking to Peter. And he looks at Peter, he says, Peter, you're going to die on a cross. And Peter's response is to look at John and go, well, what about him? And you know what Jesus says? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about him. You follow me. You don't worry about you and how great your life is going to be or not be. You just follow me. You put me on the throne. Jesus is the path for freedom from envy, and following him is the path to joy. By the way, when you get off the throne and you receive with open hands what God has for you, and you're not obsessed with what God has not given you, then this actually frees you to be a friend. We talked about this. This is, what, this is setting us up for good friendship, for the friendship talk next week. And we're all going to hold hands and sing friends are friends forever. But this is, this is setting us up. Because the opposite of envy is sacrificial friendship. It's covenantal friendship. The opposite of envy is to love your enemy. And the opposite of envy is to enter into your rich friend's home when, they, when destruction, some demise has hit their life, and instead of rejoicing internally, you come alongside them and you weep with them. See, the point of this message is this. Don't be like Saul, be like Jonathan. 
But here I want to give you one last gospel perspective before we're done. Because even this, you've got to see the gospel. You see, this is called a covenant that Jonathan makes with David. A covenant. This mimics and echoes all the covenants in the scriptures, right? There's the most famous one is the covenant that God has made with Abraham. And you know what God does in his best covenants with us? Is God says, you know what? You're such, I'm going into partnership with you, and you're such a loser. I'm going to play both parts. Because the, 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 the ethic of this text would be this. David is the anointed one. That's who Jesus is going to be, right? And that Jonathan is the friend. And so the ethic for us would be, the lesson would be, be get off the throne like Jonathan was and be Jesus' friend. Sacrifice your life for Jesus. But you are so pitiful and so pathetic. You know what Jesus had to do? Jesus had to come and he had to be both parties in the covenant. Jesus had to come and be the anointed one. He had to be David and he had to be Jonathan. And how is he like Jonathan? Philippians chapter 2. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the rightful heir who comes to earth and he lays down his robe and takes up a crown of thorns. Why? So that those who are his enemies might be praised. Those who are little in this world might ascend and have dominion. Jesus gave up his robe. Jesus left his glory so that you might be lifted up. Jesus has the opposite of envy. Jesus instead loves to see other people get, a, get what he alone deserves. Jesus is David. He's the better David, but he's also the better Jonathan. Praise be to God for that. Amen. Let's pray. God, oh man, we are such envy just runs us, God. In fact, God, I think if we were to sit down and think about it too much, we would come to a place of utter despair to think about how much even our most friendly, happy relationships are run through the lens of comparison and envy. Oh, gracious God, free us from this enslavement. Free us from the enslavement, from the covetousness of longing to have other people's lives, from being dissatisfied with the life that you've given us. Oh, gracious God, when we hear your song over us, the song that says, that communicates to us who we are in your eyes, that communicates to us your love and your affection for us, and gracious God, would that be enough? And Lord, when we hear your song, but it's, it's not enough, Lord, I pray that you remove the blockage from our ears and from our hearts to allow the love of Jesus Christ to drop in. May the penny drop. So that no matter what other circumstances you bring in our life, that Lord, we might say, I... I am loved like no one else because Jesus dies for me, because Jesus has set his affection upon me. Oh, gracious God, would that be our song? Would that be our joy? Would that be the thing that sets us free from envy and frees us to be good friends? Finally, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.